0: Welcome to Art on the Verge, the new 74 podcast series hosted by Bryce Wolkowitz discussing the drastically changing dynamics of the art world in the wake of the pandemic, from the way art is produced to how it's presented and experienced. We will also explore where creative thinking can take us and the potential of a collaborative culture in the new world. Let's join Bryce Wolkowitz in conversation with artists, curators, educators and collectors.
1: I feel honored and extremely privileged to be speaking today with my friend Paula Scher, widely considered one of the most influential graphic designers in the world. Paula's imagery has firmly entered into the American vernacular and is universally considered iconic, smart, and accessible. Scher has been a partner in the New York office of Pentagram since 1991. She began her career as an art director in the 1970s and early 80s when her eclectic approach to typography became highly influential. Cher has developed identity and branding systems for a broad range of clients, which include, among others, Citibank, Metropolitan Opera, Bloomberg, and the Highline. In 1996, Cher's identity for the public theater won the coveted Beacon Award for integrated corporate design strategy. Her work has been exhibited all over the world and is represented in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Cooper Hewitt, and the Pompidou in Paris. It is without further ado that I welcome my friend, Paula Cher to this edition of Art on the Verge, a collaboration with Istanbul 74. Hi Paula.
0: Hi Bryce, nice to hear from you.
1: Lovely to hear from you as well. So we're gonna take it from the top as they say and explore your early years. Working for Columbia Records and by coincidence alongside one Gary Walkowitz, my father, Recount, if you would, those days and that experience in the early 70s.
0: I entered uh, the design profession as a complete neophyte, and uh, also uh, at a time when the profession was not really defined. Uh, Some people called it uh, commercial art. Uh, Some people referred to it as graphic design. Uh, some people uh, didn't call it anything and didn't really know what it was. There weren't even really highly sophisticated marketing departments yet. Um, Design was much more of a seat of the pants operation. And I had uh, moved to New York in 1970 with a portfolio and about $50 and lived with an aunt for three weeks until I I got a job at an advertising agency, uh, which I kept for about three weeks and hated. But I wanted to be an illustrator at that point in time, and I was showing children's books uh, that I had illustrated. And I got a job doing mechanicals first at um, Random House. And my boss at Random House was leaving And he sent me to CBS records to work for a friend of his who needed an assistant. And I went there with no experience in the music business, uh, barely any experience designing, um, some rudimentary experience in production and a lot of ideas. And um, I began designing ads for for, uh, music. And I would design um, an ad uh, that would close on Wednesday, and I would get the information about it on Monday. So it was very fast-paced, and it, it, these things existed in places like cash box and billboards. And that's when I met your father. We were in a small office together, um, two desks, side by practically side by side, working on these really very depressing little ads that had to go out at night very quickly. And I learned everything I learned about how people make decisions based on this advertising experience. Largely, I found that if I presented anything Monday, it would get changed or rejected by the level of people that saw it because because it would work itself and be routed around the building in the hierarchy. So first, the assistant creative director would see it, then the creative director would see it, then the... The head of project management would see it, then an executive vice president would see it, and on and on and on. So on the first day, it never got beyond the creative director. On day, It would get up to maybe the uh, head of project management. And on the third day, it would get approved because they were out of time. So I realized in working with people, the best thing to do was to have no time, and then everything would be approved immediately because they would just have to do it. And I learned how people made decisions in hierarchies, which aided me all the way through my career. I was then um, hired by the art director of Atlantic Records to come and work at Atlantic because he saw some ads I designed. And I left CBS after two years and went to work at Atlantic. And in, at Atlantic Records, the advertising and the record covers were done in the same department. So I got to design record covers. And I worked at Atlantic for one year and the art director from CBS hired me back and he hired me back because um, he had seen the record covers in shows. I, I began to enter design competitions. I would, he would have never hired me out of the advertising department in CBS. I would have had to leave and then come back. I was at CBS records for a total of 10 years and seven of them were doing record covers. Uh, I made about 150 a year and they're all over the world now.
1: That's fantastic. Um, m- many of the record covers of, of bands that, that, that I, I really love for sure. I, I know we share a love of Russian constructivism. For myself, I was really inspired by the work of Alexander Rochenko and Ella Zitsky growing up. And I know you were as well. Just what was it about this period and style that impacted you and ultimately your vocabulary moving forward?
0: I began uh, to use design history as a basis to educate myself and make change. And at the time of uh, working in the record industry, uh, illustration was very popular and uh, work that was sort of a hangover from the Fillmore posters and Psychedelia were still popular and uh, typography was very influenced by Art Nouveau and very curvaceous when I began working. And I bought a, a design history book uh, and I, I think I found it in a European bookstore and I saw Elisitsky and Rochenko and Malevich for the first time and I thought, oh my God, this is great. And, Part of the reason I thought it was great was because it is. But the other part of the reason I thought it was great was it was the antithetical to what was going on in design at that particular period of time. And you can almost see in design the trends generationally of one generation rebelling against the one that was previous. What I loved about constructivism was it was bold, it was simple, it was angular, it was straight, It was spectacular, and it was the complete opposite of everything that was going on that time in design. And I think that when you look at the change in styles, you'll find that so much of what is considered new is really a reaction to what previously
1: existed. I I agree entirely. So I ultimately grew up around socks. My father graduated from his time at Columbia Records and ultimately created a hosiery company alongside my mother, You, on the other hand, grew up around maps. Your father was a cartographer for the U.S. Geological Survey, and I know this had a profound impact on you early on. Tell us a bit about that.
0: It's interesting how you're influenced by your parents because you don't know it's happening. Um, you You accept certain things about them as facts of life. My dad was a cartographer, and he was a scientist. He was what's known as a photogrammetric engineer and that deals with the science of cameras. And he was working particularly in aerial photography. He had started out on the TVA, and he found that the maps they were using uh, were inaccurate because of of shadows that were cast, or because uh, the camera did not readjust for the curvature of the Earth when taking aerial photography. So everything was distorted. Now, he explained that to me as a little kid because he later became the coordinator of the nation's mapping. And uh, he, he would say that the maps were distorted, which to me meant they were sort of dishonest, like they weren't really telling an absolute truth. He invented a device called stereo templates, which is really uh, an equation. It was a basis for measuring uh light and uh, space in photography, and he, de- he invented a calculation that automatically corrects lens distortion in aerial photography by making a, a mathematical, a mathematical j- judgment based on how high the plane is against the Earth to see how much has to be corrected. It is such a significant achievement that there could not be Google Maps without this thinking. That that's, that's what he had done, but you know he was, a, he was a government employee, a civil servant, he gave the patent to the government and, and the rest is history. But in growing up and seeing these maps around the house and listen, listening to him talk to it, I had a healthy distrust of information, knowing that, that there's always human error in it and, and knowing that, that nothing is really truly accurate.
1: I should mention that you've subsequently created a body of personal map paintings over the years which we've shown together in my gallery.
0: I began painting these things uh in uh 1990, I used to make uh, maps as illustrations that were sort of uh, ironic or satirical. I, I made hand painted pieces for the New York Times that were opinionated, and I'd make, you know, fractured charts and diagrams that were, that were uh, sarcastic and uh, sometimes parodies. And then one day in 1998, I thought actually, these paintings would look great if they were he- really big. And I started painting these very large, very complicated maps of information. And the information were gathered from real sources, but I used the information as I chose to create a specific feeling within the maps. And uh, it was something that I still do. I love it.
1: It's, It's a fantastic body of work. Now you joined Pentagram, the world's largest independently owned design studio, in 1991. Talk, if you will, about the concept behind Pentagram and its culture.
0: Pentagram is really unusual, and I can't understand why it isn't replicated. Um, it's an organization that is designed for designers and how designers behave, and designers as a group of people were were. Uh, always uh, either in their own businesses and made an assumption that when they retired, they, they'd they get money for their drawing tables, and of course never did. And they also um, were not very well protected against the brutality of uh, economies as a group, or else they were employed, and if they were employed, they could lose their jobs. So they were generally people who, who worked in a and in in an industry that really wasn't designed for the way they needed to behave. What Pentagram was, was an idea that you would have safety in numbers. And it's an organization of designers who make a decision to own the business equally to share profit equally, to make the assumption that over the long term, everybody brings something equal to the group, whether it's money or PR or management capabilities or clients, all these different things. And that collectively, you're much stronger in this group than you would be as individuals. The the premise is that you you join, uh, you have a, a couple of years where you're sort of making sure you fit into the group. And at uh, that period, you're called partner elect. And then you purchase shares in the company and become an equal owner. And as an equal owner, you have an equal voice around the table. There are two international partner meetings a year. We have offices in London and Berlin, as well as one in Austin, Texas and New York. And we get together and sometimes these are slugfests. Sometimes we get together and fight out things that the different offices disagree about. But the point is everybody has an equal vote and everybody has an equal say. And that as a result in uh, 2022, the organization will be 50 years old, which is very long for a design firm. And it's the only design firm I would argue that went into three generations of designers without losing any quality in the level of the work. I should point out the designers are, are elected in, but they can't apply. Uh, generally, the group looks for people who are like-minded. And we have a saying that first we have to like the person, then we have to like the work. And if we like the person and we like the work, the money is likely to follow. And that's sort of the methodology.
1: In the mid-1990s, your landmark identity for the public theater fused high and low into a wholly new symbology for cultural institutions. You're noted as saying, and I quote, the public theater identity is based on being extremely loud and invisible and urban, the first American Shakespeare poster ever, end quote. At this point, Paul, you had created identities for countless organizations. And so I ask you, what was it about this branding package for the public that was so dramatic and disruptive at the time?
0: The the public theater uh, identity is completely based on very bold typography, uh, American wood type. And uh, I deliberately selected this because previously the public theater was represented by uh, very beautiful illustrations by the illustrator Paul David, who did a lot of portraiture and, and paintings of the artists. And I found that Going counter to that made it noticed and also made it different from other, the expectation of what theater was. Uh, Most theater uses illustration or photography to represent plays. And I was using mostly typography and flat applied graphics. So it became noticeable right away, just in its difference.
1: Now, you are widely recognized as one of the most influential graphic designers of your generation. And so let me ask you this. What's it like to be married to an iconic figure like one Seymour Schwast, undoubtedly a true innovator in the field of illustration, graphic design, and type design?
0: Oh, it's a struggle. <laughs> uh, Seymour and I have been together for 50 years. Uh, he, I met him uh, when I was coming out of school with my portfolio. And if he is 17 years older than me. And um, our, we've lived in different phases of lives. You know, initially, he, I was a little girl, and he was a grown-up star. And then later, we became equivalent. And now we both do our own things and coexist very nicely together. Um, but the impact he had on my work was extraordinary, even though I rebelled against it.
1: I understand. So what philosophy do you ultimately subscribe to when it comes to your craft?
0: I have not ever lost my desire for making things. And I think that every project, with very rare exceptions, are really exciting challenges. And I I go into them with the most positive kinds of energy. Very often I think that something's going to be the best thing I ever did in my life. And then, of course, it never is. And then I go on to the next one with the same sort of optimism about it. I don't know why I feel that way. I just have never gotten tired of it. It, It's, this is, you know, designing for clients is a rough business and you definitely have highs and lows, but I've never lost my optimism about making things.
1: I think Walter Gropius of the Bauhaus said it best when he said, the mind is like an umbrella. It functions best when it's open. And I think that's always, um, I, I think that apply, has always applied to you. And so let me ask you this. What makes for a great client?
0: Uh, a great client is really a, a collaborator. I, I mean, a great client is somebody who hires you for the right reasons and presents challenges to you that makes, make the work better and uh, is, is very often a participant in the project. Uh, if you take the public, uh, I had two great clients, and they were both the directors of the theater. First, George Wolfe, who hired me, and secondly, Oscar Eustace. Oscar and I uh, collaborate for each season's design, um, and we, we figure out what the spirit of the season is going to be together, and then I go and design it and make some modifications with him, and, and we make it. It's wonderful. Uh, that's, that's a great client. Um, There are other clients who are are very hands-on, but also can be terrific. And I've been working for the High Line for 20 years and really enjoy working with Robert Hammond and and now Joshua David's back. And they started the thing. I mean, I, I am totally in awe of what they've achieved in the city. And so that you, you become involved in these things that even go beyond design. You, you want them to live and you, you want to work with those people who are the creators of these businesses or whatever it is that they're making. They're usually wonderful people.
1: And so what are some exciting projects ahead for you, Paul?
0: Well, it's sort of rough because I was working on a couple of large-scale identities that that are now currently on hold. So I'm not sure what exactly is happening. Most of the projects I've gotten since uh, I've been in captivity in COVID have been small scale. One of them actually is is a a theater project that's quite wonderful that I'm really enjoying working on. And another is for a major arts organization, but the corporate work has really, really fallen off, I would say at this period.
1: Sure. Let, let me ask you this: So, so we're living in an age of endless imagery. What, what's your take on Instagram and social media from 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 a visual communication standpoint?
0: I have a hard time with it, to be quite honest. Uh, to a degree, Instagram ruined photography for me because you you are making value judgments about too many things in front of you, and it it becomes very confusing to make to make judgments. Um, I think that. The problem with social media is there's no, there's no room or space for appreciation that you're sort of inundated by in a day and it's gone. So you're looking for either something that is so completely of the moment or something that has some form of stock value or, or some such thing. And I, I think that's not all that art should be and that I've worried that it is and that. We all know just from our current times in, in relationship to news media, that when you pile up stories that seem outrageous, they they lose all their outrage. That the mass, the mass of media in general, the mass of imagery in general, neutralizes all the media and all the, all the media.
1: So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Paula, who and or what is inspiring you these days?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, to be honest with you, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, really uh, this this past uh, two weeks has really shaken uh, my understanding of how I am as a human being in in society and how I have really not understood the total systemic racial problem. I didn't, I didn't get it to its core and I'm starting to see it and relearn it and it's getting me to rethink many things about the way I live, the way I make decisions and it even questions oh, my 37 years as a teacher at the School of Visual Arts where I had very few students of color. I think in, in four years I had uh, four students. And I find that so strange. And why weren't they there? Or are they not interested in it? Or why aren't, why aren't they showing up? And it never had dawned on me that it was all about the economics of the situation and how unfair that is. Um, and uh, I'm going to try to work to correct it if I can, uh, as soon as I can start teaching again.
1: Sure. I think, um, I think it's incumbent upon all of us uh, to, to do our parts, no, no question about it. Um, now, you created a recent identity for the Mental Health Coalition. Maybe you can speak a little bit about that.
0: That was great. I uh, I did that with Kenneth Cole. Kenneth Cole, you know, is the shoe magnate. He also happens to be uh, Andrew Cuomo's brother-in-law. Uh, he's been active in mental health issues. He was a gay activist for uh, uh, AIDS in the 80s and Uh, now wanted to devote himself to uh, the sort of suicide problem. And he began this thing before COVID. We were working on it in September. And he had the idea of uh, a campaign that really took the stigma out of mental health. Originally, we thought the, the, the slogan line would be, there is no normal, because people always feel that there's something wrong with them because they're feeling anxious or they're feeling depressed or whatever they're feeling and then they become more ashamed of it and don't act on it. And we wanted to break that taboo. But gradually as we began de- developing this, this uh, idea, uh, it's, it broke into two parts. One was a, an informational website from the Mental Health Coalition in which Kenneth is an active participant. And the other was another site called How Are You Really?, which is a way for people to tell their stories and communicate with each other. And um, we developed this thing from September all the way through to the time it launched, and it kept evolving because COVID made it much more important to come out and be useful. So I'm very pleased with the way it worked, Um, and uh, it was really great to work on
1: So I have one last question, looking ahead. We both have our crystal balls in front of us. I can predict that the seismic shift in my industry will be online transactional platforms as an even greater vehicle toward conducting business. And so I ask you, Paula, what do you foresee and predict as that seismic shift in your industry?
0: Well, there's no question that we've changed the way we work uh, socially and that, that it is more possible to uh, work remotely and we've all learned to do it. Now, whether or not that really shapes the relationship of the future, I'm not sure. Because it is in fact not as effective as meeting people in person and seeing things together in real life at the, at the same time, because the idea and the energy is much stronger. Though I do think what it will affect is, is the real estate of the business because you find you don't need the space and you don't need it on a full-time basis. So it'll shift the way we do meetings. I've, I've even heard uh, of companies that are planning not to actually have a central office, but have spaces that they go to particularly for meetings without keeping the space full-time. So it may change the whole economics of, of real estate and design may change. What it does to the work is unknowable. Um, I am hoping that it makes a society that comes out of this thing optimistic and that optimism is always the thing that drives our culture in a positive way. And uh, with a a little bit of luck that will happen. It's hard to know how long this is gonna continue and I think that that's what makes it very frustrating to
1: predict. I, I, I completely agree, and I think uh, your sentiments around uh, an economy of means and a shared economy is, is going to dramatically impact my industry as well. Um, I want to thank you, Paula. I'm endlessly inspired by your creativity, your passion, your amazing energy, and it's been such a pleasure to catch up with you today. Thank you.
0: Thank you. It was fun, Bryce. Thanks a lot.